Today on The Black Goat, we talk about academic service, what that means at different career stages, and how to fit it in with your other work, and a letter about getting credit for peer reviewing. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. I'm Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett. And it's fall, and that means it's football season in the United States. Alexa, has anybody noticed in your town that uh, football has started up? Is that I, is anyone paying attention? I almost feel guilty, like, signing on for this topic as our chit-chat topic because... I have so many friends who just like complain about how as soon as like fall season hits, all anyone talks about is football and how it's like so annoying to live in Tuscaloosa because you just like are bombarded by football wherever you go. And I feel like my like our podcast should be maybe not part of that. Um, a, a but at the same time, I sort talk. of like enjoy talking <laughs> about football to some extent. Um, so like in Tuscaloosa, I mean, people are obsessed with football. Like, it's literally everywhere you look. Um, and everybody knows what's going on, um, at least to some degree. Um, and I feel like sort of... But then there is, like, a small anti-football counterculture, which is just people who are, are either, like, opposed to football for ethical reasons or just, like, annoyed by <clears throat> the fact that it's so dominant or, like... <clears throat> they just like generally don't like sports so I hear a lot of like it's so like pointless to be interested in football like why do people waste their time kind of thing I'm not very sympathetic to that argument um because I think that most people spend time entertained by pointless things and so you just sort of have to like pick your poison um but yeah I I can kind of get into football and I'd say I watch maybe like half of the games um and I will like I will occasionally be like the person who yells the at the screen if it's like a big game. Nice. <laughs> so I, you know, are you the same, Sanjay? I uh, yeah. So I I watch college football in part more so than I used to because my wife uh, is a huge Michigan fan. Uh, she went to Michigan. She's from Michigan, and she's you know she's gotten our son into football. Um, we and so we watch the Ducks. I have very mixed feelings about college football because I, as a spectator, I love watching mm-hmm. college football. But you know, I I kind of see what that does to universities, and it's it's funny actually for our non-American listeners, <laughs> they're getting a little window into like because it, when you do step back or when you look at it through the eyes of somebody who's outside of the United States, it's like borderline bizarre yeah i think it's like surreal and pathological married (laughs) together like this but uh um it's just kind of part of the culture so you know and oregon has for for people outside the u.s to to know alexa's at the university of alabama which has i think people would generally agree probably the the for the last decade or so the strongest college football team in america i'm at the university of oregon yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm at the University of Oregon, which has a, a pretty good football team, um, and and they pour a lot of money and resources into it, et cetera, blah blah blah. But I would I would think there'd be you just don't mention to... Davis. You're just gonna leave it out with that. <laughs> David, Davis. Has, they they get together at the at the park on Saturday and toss the ball around. Um, I would think there'd be advantages to being part of the anti-football counterculture. Like Samin was just here visiting, and uh, on it was a Saturday night, and there was an Oregon night game, and we got great seats at the bar uh, when we went out to dinner because uh-huh. like nobody was there. <laughs> yeah, if you want to drive around to Tuscaloosa, like in the middle of a football game is the time to do it. There is no one on the roads. Yeah. So, Samin, do you have some of that, like, uh, outside the U.S. alien feeling when you, since since Davis is not a big football school, when you see people? No, because I went to grad school at University of Texas, and at the time that I was in grad school, they were extremely good. They won the national championship my last year there, so I was really into it then. So I can definitely relate. Um, Yeah, but I think it is complicated, right? Not just the money, but also, like, the injuries and concussions and then the fact that the players are not allowed to make any money whatsoever off of anything yeah it's crazy like california just passed or yeah the law passed but hasn't been signed yet um to try to give athletes the right to sell their likeness or autographs or coach teams or whatever Uh um and the ncaa is threatening to 
do bad things to them or something. But yeah, I think I, mean, I really enjoy watching most sports, especially team sports and, and football's up there, but I haven't watched since I haven't watched regularly since I left Texas, but yeah. I can still get into it. Now mostly I just root against certain teams rather than for any teams, but that can be fun too. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you root against, Samir? In football, I root against University of Southern California, uh, Oklahoma still a little bit because they were Texas's rivals. Mm. Ohio State. Ohio State for sure. Duke, yes. I root against in basketball, <laughs> but basketball, I don't. Right. I don't even know if they exist in football. <laughs> Surely they have a football team. <laughs> they do actually. Okay. Yeah, because Alabama played them recently. Yeah, so I definitely um, want them to lose. I will say, in terms of like entertainment value, watching a sport. I think football is, like, very high up there for me. I'm, like, extremely impressed by what football players can do. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if you look at a highlight reel for, like, football games, it's, like, com- like something completely incredible happens in almost every game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's – I mean, that's part of, yeah, why football is, is such a popular sport is, like, there's – it appeals to it can, there's so many things going on that can appeal to people at different levels so there's like the like spectacular physical feats of mm-hmm. plays if you're into like strategy it's yeah, you know i think a, a lot of people who are new to football think it's just guys running into each other but there's like a ton of you know you've got 22 people on the field and everyone has a very specific role and it's and they all have to fit together and and you know, so if you're into the strategy part, you can watch it for that. If you're into, like, the people, this is what, you know, my my partner really loves, like, the stories of the people. So there's all this stuff. Um, but then, yeah, like, the there's the exploitative aspects of it, too, that are, you know, uh, um, I'm, I mean, I was really glad to see California pass that law because it's just, it's nuts that there are people doing a thing that, other people will pay incredible amounts of money for and over and because of, and the people doing the actual thing don't get any piece of that. And that is, I think that has to change. And they I'm take all really the risk, like they could get major injury yeah. and yeah. All stuff, but they get none of the yeah. financial benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope he's, I hope our governor signs it. Yeah. My, um, my alma mater, Northwestern University, uh, the players tried to unionize a few years, or one of the players was trying to, to get the team to unionize a few years ago, and, and they ended up, a court ruled that, that college football players, or at least private college football players, can't unionize, um, but that, you know, there have been these efforts, I think some led by the players and some from outside. Um, I, I was kind of bummed that that didn't go through. That was a... a pretty impressive attempt Mm -hmm. yeah one I think also unfortunate consequence of the dominance of football at least in Alabama is that other athletes don't get the amount of attention that they deserve like everybody's talking about football all the time but I think there are like amazing like gymnasts softball players basketball players rowers maybe golfers like there's like all of these super impressive athletes that just like do not get the airtime because people are just I'm not sad about the golfers but I'll grant you the rest (laughs) (laughs) what do you have against golf (laughs) who watches golf I don't get that I have a feeling that golfers get enough good perks in life probably that's just my stereotype (laughs) of who gets into golf yeah right I have that the golfers in the yacht team are uh, are not hurt but that is one perk of being at a division two school is that it's fun like I've never heard of anyone going to a football game but we do go to like basketball games or yeah, other kinds of sports, um, which I think is more, it's more evenly, the, the small amount of attention is more evenly spread. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, we go to, we, we went to a lot of the women's basketball team games last year because they, the, our Oregon's team is really good. Um, and they're so much fun to watch because they're just so damn skilled and, and, you know, really got the crowd fired up. Um we uh, we also have been to we've been to a lot of the sports, but we, the Oregon has a they call it acrobatics and tumbling, which is kind of the evolution of cheerleading. Um, so you know, as cool. cheerleading became a competitive sport, and it and the the competitive aspects became more focused on the the acrobatics and that kind of stuff. And so it's basically like kind of showy team gymnastics. Um, 
and it's a lot of fun to watch. Like, it's kind of a, a you know, it's an interesting thing because it, it originated in, like, you know, this very sort of gendered, like, women in a secondary role on the sidelines cheering the men. But, you know, it's really become a, a competitive sport unto itself. And it's, you know, Oregon, I don't think, has a traditional gymnastics team. So this is kind of what they have instead. But anyway, yeah, it, it's it's like, I, I agree, like, you're if all you focus on is football and men's basketball, you're missing out if you're a sports fan because there's so much else going on at universities. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you're outside the United States, then, again, none of this makes sense. <laughs> well, presumably they have some university sports teams, right, and competitions. Maybe not, like, at the – there's probably not as much money poured into it, so they might not have the someone professional-level um, athletes that your schools have. Someone once asked me if the University of Toronto had a football team, and I sincerely didn't know the answer. Oh. Um, they do have a football team, actually. Melbourne better um, have a volleyball team or something like that. I want to be able to go watch something. A volleyball team? That's I your love number one volleyball. pick? It's so much fun to watch volleyball. Yeah, you're or right. Or tennis. I like watching tennis. I think tennis is... When I was like saying that football is really high entertainment value, I think I like tennis even slightly better. Yeah. Yeah. You should come visit for the Australian Open. Okay. Cool. I'll be there. Is that in Melbourne? Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Sanjay, cool. you should come too. I, 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 it's, it's a plan. We'll do a live okay. podcast right. from the Australian right. Open. <laughs> cool. Well, All should right. we uh, should we move on and do our letter now? Yes, let's do our letter. Okay. Hello, goatees, pun intended. I listened to a couple of recent episodes talking about open peer review and modifications to the peer review process in general, and I'm currently reviewing a manuscript, so a couple of questions about that came to mind. First, I have reviewed two papers in my academic career. The first one allowed open review, and I promptly used that option, signing my review and even putting that on my CV. Is this bad form? Should I not mention that on my CV? I figured the journal allows for signed reviews, so my name will appear on the final PDF, so I might as well make it visible on my CV. But now I'm getting second thoughts, as I have not seen that on other people's CVs, and I worry it might come out as braggy or downright unethical. Second, the manuscript I'm working on at the moment does not allow for open reviews. I am pondering how, if at all, I should make that work public on my CV. I believe reviewers, even anonymous reviewers, should get some sort of public credit for their work, and I'm wondering whether this idea might be it. This is especially important to me, since I am an ECR currently on the job market, so I need every advantage I can get my hands on. Best, anonymous. Um, Yeah, I was thinking about this as I was reading this letter, and whether I see people report um, reviewing on their CVs, and... I agree with the letter writer that I don't see that commonly. Um, one thing that I do, like, especially not manuscript by manuscript, one thing that I do see is that people will say that they do reviews for certain journals. Um, and I don't think that there's any ethical um, dilemma about reporting that on your CV. Yeah, I think it's a standard part of CVs to list which yeah. journals you're an ad hoc reviewer for. And right. Any If you're on any editorial boards. Yeah, and I mean, also guess, there's um, Publons, which allows you to get verifiable credit for your reviews, so the journal verifies that you really did do the review, So, and then you can link, okay, yeah, okay. people can go see which reviews you've done that are on Publons. Mm-hmm. But that's there's also Publons, not the specific paper, I don't think. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask, yeah. they, they don't do it by paper, they do it by journal? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Actually, I've never went in and looked at my Publons account, but I it can't possibly say which specific paper publicly, maybe privately you can see that and maybe you can give other people access to that information i'm not sure mm-hmm. okay but one thing that i think we should clarify is that this person talks about open review but that's ambiguous between two different things and it sounds like here that they mean both senses of open review so both signed but also the, mm-hmm. the review itself will be public which that's pretty rare so signed review is usually allowed very few journals actively don't let you sign your review but it's pretty rare that journals will publish the review. And even when they do, it's usually only if the paper is accepted. So the, the, the conditions under which, at least in our field, under which you would be allowed, it would be okay to put on your CV which paper you reviewed for would have to be like, well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure where my own line is. But where it's really, really clear that it's allowed is when the reviews are published with the paper and you signed your review then there's like no question at all that of course you can put on your cv that you reviewed this paper um other than that i think i think 
less than that, you get into gray area, but I think it's also maybe very well justified to put it on your CV even under less extreme conditions. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that before, that yeah. if, if with open peer review, um, if it's only published if the article is accepted, and then if we also start giving people credit for open peer reviews, that creates a perverse incentive mm-hmm. for people to get favorable <laughs> reviews. Yeah. Like, That's I actually think know, it's, it's what, a not, not a sustainable system. I think open peer yeah. reviews has to move towards publishing papers and reviews that are rejected too, which would change the whole publishing landscape. Because if you're publishing mm-hmm. papers you reject, then what does publication mean? Which I think is great to ask those questions, but... The current model of open review only for accepted papers, I think, is not. Nick Brown has pointed this out on Twitter many times. I just don't see how it works in the long run. It feels like a stepping stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay, when people are, when people write a review, um, what is, what is the reason not to say that you reviewed a specific paper? I guess I'm thinking like. The reasons for not saying that mostly come from you as an individual wanting to be anonymous. But is, are there other things that... If the paper gets rejected, you're not allowed to reveal to the world that it was ever submitted to that journal. Ah, uh, right, right. So, I mean, again, there might be, like, justified cases to break the rules, but... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the rule. I think that, you know, there, there are complicated questions about credit... Um, like what credit should we assign a peer reviewer? Like, let's say the paper does get published eventually. Um, what, you know, uh, um, do we give the peer reviewer a share of credit for the, the paper itself as opposed to that, giving them credit for having terrible, done a service? actually, because what if they hated the paper? Yeah, yeah, but this, but what if what if they contributed a really useful idea yeah, to the paper, yeah. right? So, so it's not. I don't think I don't think there's like an, an across the board answer, right. but um, like if the point of if the point of giving people credit for peer review is that the idea that peer review might contain like actual interesting scholarly content, um, and if if it's if it's interesting scholarly content that's generated as part of making a paper happen, it, it gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you sort of tease that out? I mean, part of it is still tied to journal prestige, right? Like, part of what's impressive about having been a reviewer for Journal X is if people think Journal X does a good job in the peer review process, like is a good filter, then they're like, oh, you're part of that filtering system that we think works really well and, and lets mm-hmm. in only really good papers. So and they and they trust you to help them with that. Um, I, I I bet I bet it's more in practice. It's less about is Journal X a good filter, and more about is Journal X prestigious, right? Which is supposed so, to mean the same thing, but doesn't. Yeah, but right. It doesn't. Yeah, right. Like if you, but yeah, like it, I think the the like heuristic signal is you say, oh, I'm an ad hoc reviewer. I'm a consulting editor for fancy journal and then people go oh well fancy journal ask this person yeah. to, i mean if they if they notice at all mm-hmm. and i mean I, you know another question is like how much this stuff even matters yeah, right? right like is someone going so i think the, the i think ad hoc reviews probably you know i don't know if they matter at ad all ad hoc just like means being a cons- we should clarify it just means like yeah. you're not official on the editorial board but you right. yeah. have done some reviews on a case-by-case basis yeah, and, and this is something for early career researchers to know about is that um, when you open it up and you see that they're usually called consulting editors, what that means is it's just somebody that reviews a lot for the journal. Maybe. And if you're, maybe, <laughs> or, or they're, they're supposed to be reviewing a lot for the journal. And if you ask some, uh, uh, if you are, are editing or reviewing a lot for a journal, it's totally in bounds to email the editor and say, hey, would you consider adding me as a consulting editor? Say, like, I've reviewed, um, this is the fourth review I've done for this journal this year. I would love to be a consulting editor if that's possible yeah Yeah. i think many journals do a terrible job actually of having choosing their editorial board based on who does the most reviews i think a lot of it is prestige they just want famous people's names on their editorial board and then they don't actually ask those people to review or when they do those people don't do the reviews so i i think it's Hmm. good actually to be like hey i've now done seven reviews for you this year do you think that would qualify mm-hmm. me as a consulting editor? <laughs> yeah. I think it's yeah. good to put pressure on journals for their cons- editorial board to actually reflect who's doing the reviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, I mean, back to the, to the question, I, you know, I don't know if, 
like I mean the the idea of of asking for credit on a manuscript level, I think that is a little bit unusual. I don't know how people looking at a CV would interpret that. I guess I'm not sure if the if the point if if we're just talking about the world we live in now, not some imagined future world where we have better systems for credit, but just the world we live in now. Like if I saw a CV and it actually had specific manuscripts, it would look a little weird to me. Yeah, I'm yeah. completely honest. I think I, would I think wonder what was going on there. Yeah. Maybe the yeah, if we're making specific recommendations, I wonder if like so, like we've already talked about some people have a section on their CV or maybe it's a standard section that mentions the the journals that you've done ad hoc reviews for. So I think that is one way to get credit. And then also maybe in situations where you're doing open review where your review is available to the public, you could also have a section on your CV that points people to those reviews. I would love that. If So I would only mention a specific review reviewed for if the people reading your CV right. can see your review. That's really valuable. And in yeah. fact, like, I wish that was part of a job interview process. I wish that like, yeah. we sent candidates a paper and asked them to write a review as if they were reviewing it for a journal. Oh, yeah, um, that's cool. That's a cool idea. In fact, I think it's, yeah, anyway. Um, but so, yeah, if, if we had job candidates who provided links to content of reviews that they were allowed to share that were already public or, you know, um, I would love to see those. But I think mm-hmm. otherwise I wouldn't mention the specific papers. If if we can't see your review, then I don't know what to make of the fact that you were a reviewer on this paper. Like if I don't like the paper, then do I think, oh, you endorsed this? Or if you're telling me that you were a reviewer for it, does that mean you liked it? Or mm-hmm. So I think it gets complicated if we can't see the content of the review. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I just want to push you on this a little bit. I mean, you're talking about what you would, how you would feel. Yeah. But like, for for someone who's on the job market now, if they have a CV and it has, like, I, here here's a an open here's a link to an open review I did for this specific paper, like a, a section of their CV that's like open reviews. Um, I guess one question is is that going to matter at all like mm-hmm. is anybody going to actually look at look those up mm-hmm. and then if if people do see that part of the cv which way is it going to cut mm-hmm. like are people going to know are enough people going to know like oh this person's like doing they're going to interpret it as this person's doing a good thing they're they're writing reviews they're making them open or are they gonna be like this is weird mm-hmm. why is this here like not, not you yeah. because you you care a lot about reviewing and, yeah. and you know what open review is. But I think yeah. if the review is really good for that small proportion of search committee members who notice the link and click on it and read the review, I think it would help them even if, I don't know. I mean, there has to be consensus on what's a good review and so on. The problem is that right now that's correlated with low prestige journal. Like the only journal that's going to post your review is not, right? It's not going to be JPSP or Psych Science or whatever. So it probably won't help you because showing that you did even a really good review for Collabora or whatever, I don't think is really going to impress anybody, unfortunately. I don't think it'll hurt you, though. So I think it's the kind of thing where, like, the few people on search committees who care about reviewing and open science will probably like it, and then the rest of the people won't won't notice or won't care, I think. I just, I'm not sure that it, it would hurt you. I wouldn't make it a, like, big part of your CV or put it anywhere near the top or anything like that. But if you have a section on like journals you've reviewed for, and then for one of them, you're like here, you know, this review was open. Here's the link or something like that. I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. I don't think that'll hurt you, but I could be wrong. It'd be sad if that was actually harming people. It's such a small thing to, yeah. Hold against someone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, my intuition is the same as yours to mean that that wouldn't, it could, help in a small minority of cases and it could probably not really hurt. I mean, if it's something like meta psychology, that's pretty subversive. Um, it just, the fact that you've reviewed for them might hurt you. I'm not sure posting <laughs> the link to the review. I mean, I don't want to endorse that. I think it's terrible. And, and I think most people won't know, right? Most people who might hate meta psychology and the idea of it won't know what meta psychology is. So it won't hurt you even to mm-hmm. mention it, but. I, that's funny. I, it's hard for me to imagine anybody seeing, oh, this person reviewed for this journal, so I like them a little bit less now. <laughs> um, unless it was like some, you know, whatever, some like... Predatory journal. Fringy, racist journal or something like that. Uh-huh, but, uh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, you know, if people look at the what you've reviewed for at all, I think a lot of times it's to just get a feel, not so much for, like, good, bad, but just what are you? Like, the same way people will look at what societies you're a member of. They'll, you know, that, that to people is a signal of, like, what professional communities are you known in, a part of, etc., um, it is interesting, the idea of like trying to pull a quality assessment out of that with open reviews. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I also I think like, you know, um, yeah, in the grand scheme of things on on the academic job market, this all of this stuff is probably pretty small potatoes. Yeah, yeah definitely. Very, very, very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, did we answer the letter? I think I we, think we answered that letter more than we answered the vast majority of <laughs> we actually was, had some knowledge about less this tangential topic. than usual yeah okay cool well uh thank you anonymous for uh for your letter and listeners if you would like to email us you can reach us letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com uh you can find us on twitter at blackcoatpod or on facebook facebook.com slash blackcoatpod instagram instagram.com slash blackcoatpod and our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. And you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify. You can rate us if you want to, and that helps people find us. Um, yeah, so for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about academic service. And, you know, it, it, there's kind of like when we talk about academic work, there's these sort of three bins, research, teaching, service. Um, you know, not every academic job has all of those, but that's that's sort of traditional. If you're a tenure track professor, those are kind of the three buckets that your work falls into. And out of those, academic service is the least prestigious, I would say, for as, certainly at the start of your career. Um, it, although it's kind of there's this weird inversion that can happen sometimes later in your career, right? But it's 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 a thing that when you're starting out, you're told to spend the least time on. Um, it's supposed to kind of increase as you go along and it's kind of, um, yeah, it's sort of viewed as like, uh, you know, oh, well that's not, you know, the thing you're supposed to be spending the most time on at this one level. But then at, at another level, you're going to be asked to do stuff all the time. And it's actually, service is actually incredibly important for the academic profession. Mm -hmm. So we are... You know, universities are supposed to have shared governance. Faculty are supposed to have an important role in governing universities. I think there's been kind of a, a bad trend of that becoming less the case, but that that is historically how universities are supposed to operate: is is that they're supposed to be governed by the faculty. Um, and then across universities within a, a discipline or a profession, professions are also supposed to be self-governing so we get together and we have professional societies that set in some cases set ethics standards and and that do the work of organizing fields they publish journals they um, organize conferences so so you know uh, within a discipline across universities there there there's this also this idea that we're sort of self-organized and self-governing and kind of you know self-sustaining professions Mm -hmm. um so and and all none of that happens without service none of that happens without people doing academic work saying i'm going to set aside a portion of my time to make my university run or to make my profession run um so it's it's this really important thing um and yet we treat it as shit work and uh, uh and we're told to deprioritize it and we're not given a whole lot of credit necessarily when we do it, definitely at the start of your career, but even later on. Um, so it's this kind of weird thing that people have to figure out. At, and it's very different at different career stages, what you're expected to be doing, what you could be doing. Um, so it's this weird thing that people have to navigate. Mm-hmm. I had this reaction like to both teaching and service when I started my job and like as I've, you know, I've had my job for a few years. Um, that like at the beginning, um, I didn't have much experience with teaching and obviously I guess I didn't have much experience with service and it was so clear that these things were treated as lower priority, like, um, teaching and even to a greater degree service as these like things that get in the way of your main goal, which should be research. Um, and my experience, yeah, over the past, I guess, seven years is just that like, 
Um, while I do think that it's important to know what your department and your field value, you know, you don't want to spend 100% of your time on service if you're going to get no credit for that. Um, but in terms of what I find personally meaningful, um, I find like many of the service things that I do and certainly teaching to be quite meaningful, not necessarily more meaningful than research, but um, things that I think are really like valuable ways to use my time. Um, so I think it's a little unfortunate the way that um, we generally portray service as this like sort of like these pesky tasks that get in the way of our real goals, because I think some of them can be um, can be really important. Um, like, for instance, for my department, one of my service responsibilities is like choosing colloquium speakers. And I think like I think that's like a great way to spend my time. I mean, it's first of all, it's fun. Um, but then also it is like an opportunity to bring cool like ideas and speakers to the department. So I feel like it makes a difference and um, like inspires students and things like that. Um, I would also this was something that we talked about in the SPSB symposium on podcasts, but I would also consider the podcast sort of service. I don't know if you, if that's the way that you guys think of it. Um, but I definitely like doing the podcasts and think it's worthwhile. <laughs> podcast is an interesting example of, yeah. um, like you can, I think you can innovate with service and I don't think we always think of it that way. Like I think, and certainly, you know, when you're starting out, like, it's just like, I got placed on this committee, so I'm going to do this committee thing. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, like people people start professional societies and people do, you know, do other kinds of things as they get further along in their careers. And, yeah, um, you know, and, and, and I think new media forms can be, you know, can be a, a way to kind of like innovate or in, invent a new kind of service for yourself. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the the silver lining of service is like if there are things you enjoy doing or want to do, want to contribute that are not that don't fit in the research box. Often you can figure out a way to call them service, and they are service. Um, so podcast would be one example, but there are other things like if you like creating course materials for other people to use, or you like yeah, starting a professional society or um, teaching workshops or things like that. Um, it's hard to always get it counted as service, but at a minimum, I think it gives you the freedom sometimes to say no to other things and say, yeah, I can't do that because I'm already doing a lot of this other stuff, um, even if that other stuff isn't necessarily super valued by your department. Like at, in my department, my university, service to the field counts much, much, much less than service to the university. And so mm-hmm. while it doesn't, for me, it doesn't check that box, like I can do all the service I want to the field, but I still haven't like performed above expectations or whatever on service if it's not if there's not service to the university but but it does give me some freedom to sometimes say no to things if someone asks me for like a really big service thing for the department or university and I can say well I'm editing a journal and president of a society and whatever I think they're more understanding if I say no to those things I still don't get evaluated super high on service because of the way it's defined so I think there's like the the official recognition of service and then there's like the everybody understands that this is service and so it gives you a little bit of a break which is less good than official recognition but still counts for something. So sometimes it can be a way to do the things that yeah that give your work meaning and that make you feel like you're making a contribution. Um, it's a pretty wide category that can include a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. How how do you guys get evaluated on service in when you're when it when, when it comes to like merit raises or tenure promotion that kind of thing like what's the actual system because that the, as you're saying this I mean I'm I'm guessing from the way you just described it that the way Oregon does it might be different from the way Davis. Well, one does weird it. thing about the way Davis is it is like especially at the poll professor level, you're expected to be on university wide committees. So like a department committee isn't enough, and it's such a silly category. So I'm I was chair of a university wide committee last year, which sounds super impressive. It, we met one time for two hours and yeah we did some work outside of the meeting but it was not much work at all but that checked the box of i did university-wide service and it's actually kind of hard to get on a university-wide committee because there aren't that many of them um, and then they're hugely uneven like some of them meet for two hours twice a month and some of them meet mm-hmm. for two hours once a year and that distinction is kind of lost i mean people are much more impressed if you're on the one that meets a lot but still i i managed to check that box which is really important i mean there are other of course like at the department level 
they understand that like editing or starting a professional society or whatever counts a lot and so I do get credit for that kind of thing among the people who are evaluating me more closely but then when it goes past the department level I don't think that stuff counts very much at all but it it counts Mm -hmm. indirectly because my department's colleagues will write positive comments about my service and that gets passed up do you do you have like a, a rubric or a checklist or is it just kind of you list all your service stuff and they sort of have a rough like oh she didn't do enough of this or i think we split it up by different types of service like university level department level and then service of the field and I'm, I'm not sure if there's a rubric but it, that's how we tend to do it but nothing more okay. specific than that i don't think okay so that actually does sound not dissimilar from from my department um yeah and it's you know i mean the the weird thing about service and this is this is part of why like i think it's it's important to talk about navigating this is that you know uh, out of those three buckets right so research you should always be doing more like if if you if if, what's the standard Mm -hmm. i'm not saying you uh, this is not advice i'm saying what's what's the stand the standard is more is better more Mm -hmm. is always better right so more productivity more grants more blah 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 right that's the standard for for research and that's the way it's incentivized um is that more is better and you know at at my university which like a lot of universities the main way to get your salary to increase is to get an outside offer and nobody gives you an outside offer for doing a great job on the library committee right mm-hmm. people give you an outside offer for research outputs and grants and so so like there's this whole incentive system built around research and then teaching what how much teaching should you do you should do what you're assigned to do right and you can you can negotiate or or there are things that can affect the assignment but then once that's set like you you get a course and you teach the course or you get two courses you teach the two courses and you can pour more into those courses but there's kind of this like delimiting thing of like the course service is this weird thing where you could be doing more like people will be asking you to do more but it's not like research where you're going to get more like there's vastly diminishing marginal returns in terms of like incentives and professional credit right mm-hmm. like there there is an amount and the amount the sort of where that where the elbow on the diminishing marginal returns curve is is different by career stage um so you know like Samin saying if you're a full professor there's sort of higher expectations for for service to your university to your field blah 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 but you know you reach this point where like people will always be approaching you saying can you be on this committee can you you know edit for this journal can you uh um you know do this do this task for me and you're kind of on your own to figure out if you're doing enough too much too little and to start to say no to things so it's it is this thing that's different um from from those other two categories and i i don't know about you guys i find this like really difficult to to navigate because i'm getting asked to do stuff all the time and I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say no to things, especially when you're getting asked. A lot of times, you know, the things that you're getting asked to do are things that you agree are important. And they're thing you're getting asked a lot of times by people that you respect um, mm-hmm. and that, that also think the thing is important. And you know that their life is going to be more difficult if you say no to it. Um, but you're supposed to figure out how to, like, other than, you know, yeah, other than just how much time do you have or whatever, you're supposed to figure out, like, how do I balance this in and that kind of thing. And it, I find that to be really difficult. And, and I've gone through several periods in, in my career where I've had too much, I, th- I think, in, you know, where in retrospect, I've said I was doing too much or I was trying to do too much. And, and there's just no limiting factor on that. Um, and and it's, it's really, I find it really difficult to navigate. And it's also vastly inequitable who gets asked to do stuff. I was right? going to ask, so, do you think that you get asked more than other people? And if so, yes. why? Um, I, I do. And uh, um, I think it's because I will actually do things. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I'm certainly not the most organized person and the most conscientious person. But, you know, I have colleagues who will either fuck things up or blow things off. 
Mm-hmm. And so they just don't get asked anymore. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't hurt them. Right. Um, it, it, they, they get asked less and they do enough. Um, or maybe maybe they don't. I don't know. But they, they do enough to usually to, to sort of like satisfy on their evaluations and nobody's asking them. Um, and I, you know, I'm somebody who like I have a really hard time saying I have like you, you sort of idealize like how would you manage this? Well, you say like I have X hours a week or I have X amount of my work time or whatever that I'm going to allocate to service. And then within that amount that I've set, I'm going to do, I'm going to pick and choose the things that are most meaningful and, and that I'm the most confident, right? That sounds like very nice in the ideal. But in practice, you're responsive to the needs around you. You're not just responsive to like, well, I've only set aside this much time, or at least I am. And so I have a really hard time, so, you know, someone approaches me and, uh, um, you know, asks if I can do this thing. And I'm like, holy shit, that's really important. Um, and I feel like I could make a difference if I if I did this thing, and yeah, and I, I get myself into trouble that way, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't. Do you guys have this problem, or is this just me? <laughs> I guess I'm not totally sure whether I have this problem because I'm not sure how much service I do relative to other people. Um, I I don't think that I do a disproportionate amount of service compared to the other people in my department. Um, And then I also, like, I also don't say no to service very often, um, which I think means that I'm not being asked to do an insane amount of stuff. Um, But, yeah, maybe I'm one of those people, Sanjay, who drops the ball and so nobody asks. Do you guys know this (laughs) Shel Silverstein poem? I'm going to recite it. It's very short. It's, if you have to do the dishes, such an awful boring chore. If you have to do the dishes instead of going to the store. If you have to do the dishes and you drop one on the floor, maybe they won't make you do the dishes anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I always think of this when I get asked to do like things that nobody wants to do. And then like other people are like, oh, I'm so bad at that. I'm not going to do that. Like, uh-huh. I-, I would just mess it up. It's like... No one wants to do it. <laughs> yeah, I hear a lot of people say, like, use the phrase, like, I don't think that I'm the right person for that yeah, job. Right, right. And I'm like, just like, just say what you mean. Yeah. Just say you and don't want to do it. There are some tasks where like tasks that like literally anybody could do when I get asked and I'm, I know I'm already doing more. And there's some people who don't do their weight. Now I've gotten more pushy about saying like, please ask these five people first because, uh, you know, I'm doing these other things. I did. I agreed to do these other things that they didn't agree to do. Um, and I think now it's their turn or whatever. Um, oh, really? In your department? Yeah, I've done it once or twice. For like, like one example is like grading honors theses. So they have to be graded by people other than their honors advisor. And like literally anybody can do that. And so there are other things that not literally anybody can do. And I've agreed to do some of those things because I wouldn't want my colleagues who really don't want to do them to do them because that would be really bad for the students, like teaching research methods, for example. Like you don't want someone teaching research methods who really doesn't want to teach research methods. So I get it. Yeah, okay. Sure. But like grading an honors thesis, like, come on. So when like yeah. I get asked to do that and they're like, oh, well, those people said that they're, they have a grant deadline. I'm like, well, fuck that because we all have other deadlines. And, right. and it's literally something they can't fuck up like you can't drop the dishes on the floor on that one like you just read the thesis and give it a grade like um yeah well i think this is this is an important distinction to that yeah so so when people use their research as an excuse for not yeah accepting service assignments right. that's like no like they're, they're you know they're supposed to be like the, they're supposed to be doing service but then also like when you know when they are gonna you know fuck it up it's like what are the consequences Mm -hmm. gonna be for that and there's there just there aren't and and there's you know and there there's also i think there's a big distinction in service between like what i what i would call glamour service like service that it comes with prestige attached Uh and a lot of times the you know there there's a subcategory of service shirkers who are They'll they'll say yes to being on like the presidential commission on blah 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 because that's like prestigious and they get to rub elbows with the president or things that they get to be visible or interact with donors or with you know money or power or that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, when it comes time to just getting something done to make the department work, it's like oh that's for the little people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know I 
yeah, I I find this uh, um, yeah I find this very frustrating to to watch this play out um, because you know and nobody I mean the other thing that's that's part of service is like nobody knows all the service that you're doing except when you list it on a report for an evaluation or a promotion right so you know people you know your your department chair or you know somebody at the university comes to you to be on a committee or somebody outside or whatever and it's kind of people are on their own um for for saying yes or no to that um and you know and then there's the issue that uh women and people of color get asked to do a lot of service um, yeah. Some of that has to do with wanting to to make things look diverse, um, a sort of superficial kind of quota based concept of diversity that that some administrators they just want to check the box or make sure they don't get in trouble for for not being diverse. Some of that is that people from those groups have less social power typically and and maybe less likely to say no or to feel comfortable saying no to people in authority. Um, and I was in a Twitter discussion about this the other day where someone was posting about like getting asked to do a lot of service and I was like you know if you're getting asked a lot and you're doing the thing that people say you're supposed to do of managing your time then you're saying no to people in power a lot and Mm -hmm. the people that that don't get asked in the first place for either structural reasons or because they won't do it or won't do a good job or whatever they're not getting asked anymore and so therefore they're not put in the position of saying no to people in power and they're probably not remembered as the guy who said no to me when I needed something because uh-huh. they never got asked in the first place. Yeah. I find that we really have, frustrating. We have rules about stuff like that. I don't know if you guys do at your schools, but but our – so, for example, search committees have to have one African-American member on every search committee. So they must Are be – fucking kidding me? They must be on a bananas number of search committees because – That is – Yeah. It's crazy. Wow. I mean, it's it's just yeah, it's one of those things where, yeah, and and I mean, if if they're if they're crediting people in proportion to that, that's one thing, but right. you know they're not. No, you know, yeah, you you know they're not saying like, oh, well, this person was on like you know seventeen search committees by the time they got tenure. Um, let's let's you know give them a course release. Factor or, that in. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it's a lot of work to be on a search committee, as you guys know, yeah. or. At least it can be. Yeah. How do you um, how do you guys decide which service to do? I'm assuming you both say no to a fair number of things. My strategy more recently, and this only works, I think, a little bit later in your career, is I've tried to find big things I really like doing. That so in my mind, it's a lot easier to say yes to like a few big things, and then that gives me permission in my mind to say no to a lot of other things. So Mm -hmm. I do this with teaching, too, where, like, I like teaching research methods, but it's a really, really intensive course to teach at my university. But so then I feel like, okay, I'm doing this. It's more teaching than most of my colleagues do, et cetera. So then I feel like when I get asked other things related to teaching, I should be able to say no to a lot of the things and say um it doesn't always work. (laughs) And same. So, like, for service to the field, I do editing and then I try to give myself permission to say no to other things when I get asked again. I'm not always very good at that. But it, I feel like that, for me, that works really well because there's something I can point to. It's a visible thing that most people agree is large and should maybe count cover your whole commitment in that category. Um, so that, for me, making the individual case-by-case decisions is so draining. It's so hard. So I like the idea of having... Like I'm filling my entire bucket with this one thing or these two things, and so then I sh- it should make it easier to say no to the smaller individual things, but it doesn't always mm-hmm. work out that way. Yeah, what about you, Sandra? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think when, when I've made worse decisions, it's been for extrinsic reasons. It's been like, oh, I'm supposed to do this um, because I'm at this career stage or because I'm you know, whatever expected to. And I, I think the, um, you know, as I've gotten further along and kind of figured out, like, what are the things I am good at and what are the things I'm not good at? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, or, or at least, yeah, what are the things that I will be motivated and enjoy and do a good job of? And so, you know, that thing you were saying earlier about, like, some people will say, oh, I'm not the right person for this. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a bad version of that, which is like people 
saying I'm not the right person for this because it's beneath me or because I just don't want to do it. Yeah. But I think like matching your interests and your goals to to what you're doing is important. Sure, yeah. And and as long as that's not like matching to prestige, but rather it's matching to like skills and interests. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I um yeah, I figured out that I enjoy things that involve working with other people more than things that involve like being on my own and sort of like producing something on my own and so things you know kinds of service that are collaborative um involve like working with a committee on something like that um i I enjoy search committees uh Mm -hmm. um that's one thing that's like it's really interesting to see people you know what people are doing and to, to engage in this process and to try to figure out like it's a it's a really important way to sort of affect the future of your department mm-hmm. because you know that's the future of your department is going to be the people in it um so that's something that's you know that i figured out that i enjoy um you know i'm trying to do more service related to open science kinds of things yeah. um because that's something that i care about a lot uh-huh. yeah how about you, Alexa? How do you approach it? I I'm, was thinking about that as you guys were answering, and I think that I try to... I definitely think about my own enjoyment to some degree, so I think, like, is this is going to be, like, a, a fun way to spend my time? And I sometimes think that it, that it will be. Um, but I also think that I... I consider... Yeah, how much whoever is asking me needs a person to say yes. Um, and then I also consider whether I think that I would do a better job than other people. Um, so if it's like something that matters to me and I think I could do a better job than other people, then those are like things that I'm more likely to say yes to. I think another thing I consider, which I didn't in the past, is that it's especially like, well, in most cases of people asking you to do service, it's a society or a department or whatever, an institution. And it's it's not that different than asking them to give for you to give money. And so I started thinking more about like, are my values aligned with this group mm-hmm. who's asking for my time? Um, and so sometimes it's it's hard because there's a conflict between like at the lower level, I like the job they're asking me to do. There would be aspects of it that I would enjoy or things like that, but I don't necessarily want to be donating my time to the broader institution. And then sometimes mm-hmm. it's the opposite where I want to support the institution, but what they're asking me to do is something I would yeah. find extremely painful. Um, yeah, I feel that way sometimes. But I didn't used to think about the bigger thing. It is an ask, and there is a thing or a person behind the ask, and that's relevant, who that is or what they stand for. Um, mm-hmm. And you are tipping the scales in their favor if you donate your time to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Are there any kinds of services that you guys would never say no to? So in my department, I was talking to one of my colleagues recently, um, and she said that uh, somebody said no to being on her um, on her students' committee of some kind, like a master's committee or a dissertation committee. Um, and I was sort of surprised by that because that's something I would never say no to. Um, because what if like you were already on one. seven or eight committees? Or I am already yeah. on seven or eight committees. Mm. Um, it's just like such a small amount of time, and I guess. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe my attitude is different now, but I just assumed that people always said yes. And so I assumed that other people were also, um, you know, like are, were like pulling their weight on these committees. I would say no if like there was a specific group that I'm not a part of that kept asking me. And I can't remember if this was the case, but like when I was at WashU, philosophy would often call on me for service when they needed an external member. And a lot of things I would enjoy doing, it was fine. But I don't yeah. remember if I ever said no, but I could imagine if it was like, look, I'm not in your department. I'm not going to get much credit from this. And like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Also, you need to diversify and not always come to me and things like that. I, I think I would almost never say no to being on the committee of someone where I'm part of their group, like their area in the department or something like that. Uh, I feel, mm-hmm. feel like that is part of my job. And there's just so few people you can ask that if people start saying no it gets very difficult but if you're consistently being asked to be the outside member way more than is proportional uh-huh. I think it's fair to say no yeah yeah I uh, I, t- I can't think of anything that there's no circumstances yeah. <laughs> in which I would say no to it like I you know and, and that's, that's part of the difficulty right is that like 
you know, that's probably not true of teaching, right? So because teaching is assigned and it's structured and if if my you know like obviously there's some things if, you know if my department came to me and said Sanjay we want you to teach cognitive neuroscience I'd be like what the fuck is going on why are you coming to me but like if if there were if it was like oh my god our entire cognitive area quit last year and if you know you don't teach it you know all you know 300 students aren't going to be able to graduate and blah 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 it's like okay I would do that um I would be hell and and probably not good for anybody involved but uh um but yeah like service and i think this is this is just this goes back to the like it's you know if you don't set limits nobody's setting limits there's no Mm -hmm. you're not it's not like teaching where like you have a blah 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 load and that's how many courses you teach and that's what you do there's no blah 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 load for service and and if you're not you know, if if you're not willing to say no at some point, then you can do infinite service because there's no other breaks on it besides you saying no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I also, I think, like, I mean, I've said this before, like, I, you know, part of, like, service has to be this mixture of the needs around you, but also your goals and, and something that I wish I had done tried to do more earlier and I'm trying to do more now is to be programmatic about service to say like what you know um through some mix of like needs the sort of like what skills do I have that could could actually contribute you know more than just random person picked out of a hat or or you know skills relevant to the task etc but to also say like what are my interests and goals um and to to try to you know, be be planful about that. I don't think you can be completely programmatic because some things need to get done and somebody has to do them. And, and you know, sometimes you do have to do the thing that anybody could do because somebody has to do it mm-hmm. and that's, that's your share of it. Um, but, uh, um, yeah. I have one, another question. Um, when, when you guys are asking people to do service, um, do you consider, how do you decide who to ask? So my, my, job as associate head of my department which I'm about to no longer be associate head but uh part of my job is to to I do it with our department head but I do the service assignments um the department service assignments and so it's a um it's a mix of like we we start with uh, sort of the chairs of the major committees like director of undergrad education director of graduate education those kind of things and that is very much like and those come with course releases, mm-hmm. and that's very much about like expertise and skill and and suitability. And then, so you sort of fill those out, and then it is like there are all these goals and constraints that it it you know you have to go through, and you say like this committee needs to have somebody from every area of the department, or you know, and we try to to make sure that committees aren't gender imbalanced, for example. Um, uh, and, and, you know, so you go through all of those things and, and, you know, this person's expressed an interest in working on this issue or whatever. For some things, it's really straightforward. And for some things, it's really complicated. And then we try to give less to pre-tenure people um, as much as we can. And so it, it kind of, uh, that's kind of how we sort of sort through but but that's that's a case where we're able to be a little bit more systematic about who we're assigning to things if it's just like i'm you know a chair of this thing or especially for like professional service where i have no idea what people are doing it's often just like well who would be good at this and then let's approach them and find out if they're even available or not because we have no idea going into it mm-hmm. yeah for me, I mean, the main kind of service I've been in a position to ask people to do is be associate editor. And I'm, I've probably gotten on this soapbox before on the podcast. So I apologize if this is repetitive. But one of my pet peeves is when people for positions like that, that have some prestige and some gatekeeping and like shaping incentives and stuff. I hate when people don't ask someone because they think they're already doing too much or spread too thin or whatever, or just had a baby. Like I've had several people when in discussions about like, Oh, should we invite this person to do this in situations where it's like something that people might actually want to do, not just like a God, somebody's Mm got to do this. But I really bugs me when people are like, Oh no, 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 we shouldn't ask them because they're already doing X, especially when X is not a professional thing, like had a baby or is ill or is whatever. I think the way you deal with that is 
and you should do this anyway is make it really really easy for people to say no don't pressure them you know make it clear that there's we have other options if you say no it's not not you're not putting us in a difficult position it's not your responsibility to you know help us solve this fill this gap but like if you want to do this we think you would be good plus like even just being asked is sometimes something people can uh put on like their you know promotion materials or things like that even if they turn it down some of these positions are things that it's a there's some prestige in just being invited to it even if you turn it down so i think when you're in a position to ask someone to do something to be in a service position but that has some prestige and some power and things like that don't say no for people like tell them if you think they would have been good for it and you would like them to do it just make it really Mm -hmm. easy for them to say no yeah i think that's a really good point should we end there is this our this is our long pause that tells us we're done with the podcast i think so (laughs) yep i think that's the one cool well uh thank you everybody for listening to the black goat and we will talk to you next time (laughs) 